everybody, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the show. It's your good friend Chase here, and I am stoked. Today, I'm sitting down with Sam Harris. Sam is a neuroscientist, a philosopher, and I think kind of one, two, three, four, five New York Times best-selling books covering a huge range of topics, uh, and all of these topics, they light me up, which is one of the reasons I've been wanting to have Sam on the show for a long time, not the least of which is his amazing podcast, uh, Making Sense, but he is a guru in the worlds of neuroscience, moral philosophy, meditation, mindfulness, and rationality, but he generally focuses on how to grow an understanding of ourselves and the world around us and how best to live which if you know anything about me, those are all super key aspects of why I like to explore creativity and specifically mindset, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have Sam on the show for a long time. He's practiced meditation for 30 years across a number of traditions, Tibetan, Indian, Burmese, and of course, Western meditation uh, here in the US and abroad. And this is what I would consider a wide-ranging discussion on topics that I've been... Imagine if there's someone who you respect and admire, and you can sort of pin them down for 60 to 90 minutes and ask them all of the questions that you want to ask them, and someone who's incredibly smart will sit there and patiently answer those questions. That's what this episode is for me. We talk about fear. I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's true that I believe fear holds us back. It is the key ingredient that by and large keeps us from the lives that we wished we were leading. And I've always wanted to understand that from not just a conceptual framework, but from the biological and the neurological aspects. And so I get the chance to talk with Sam about that. We talk about the biological functions of fear, when we ought to ignore it and why that relationship between the saber-toothed tiger that might kill us and what actually won't harm us, and that is how many likes we get, say, on an Instagram post or how many subscribers we get to our new app, etc. cetera. Um, we go really deep on mindfulness and mindset in general as probably the most powerful vehicle that we have at our disposal to transform our lives. We talk about how from one moment to the next, literally one moment, you can completely shift your mindset to work in your favor. Um, we talk about living amidst a pandemic. Now that was something that was the rage to talk about in March and April when it, when it first, uh, really started impacting us here deeply in the United States. Um, but now that we're several months into this, I think a new conversation, uh, needs to emerge. And that is one that Sam and I take up now it's beyond just the number of people dying and the economy and jobs, but there's something else going on here. And we pick and scratch and, and claw at that a little bit in this conversation. And I think um, come, or at least I came to a new understanding. We talk a little bit about psychedelics, about experimenting with opening the mind, but we mostly couch our conversation in the science of creativity. And what does it mean to be creative, how to access that, how to make that work for you now more than ever. And given all this conversation about mindfulness and meditation, out of the kindness of his own heart, Sam has given us a free one-month trial to his amazing app, amazing, called Waking Up. And in order to get that, if you want to, it's this URL right here, cr8.lv. That's kind of short for Creative Live, 
cr8.lv slash waking up. All one word, lowercase. Get a free month from Sam on uh, on his app there. Go check it out. All right. Creativity, the pandemic, mindfulness, meditation, fear. It's all in the next 60 minutes. So I'm going to get out of the way. Uh, someone who I've dying to have on the show for a long time. Very excited to have Sam Harris. Before we do, just a quick word from our sponsor, and then we're off on the show. Hey, y'all. Hey, uh, new sponsor alert. So this episode of Chase Jarvis Live is brought to you by Creative Live. And you all know, yeah, of course, I am the founder of that company. But I got to just be straight up. This is unequivocally, no questions asked, the best place in the world for creator and entrepreneurial education. I mean, frankly, nothing even comes close. And it's the only one that's focused specifically on photography, design, video, art, music, craft, and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all those disciplines. It's where the best teachers in the world, where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best go to teach. So of course, I'm biased, but I I just encourage you to check it out because nothing else comes close. And you will be on your way to join millions of other folks in our creative community there learning from the world's top experts. Okay, that's it. That's my soapbox. That is the commercial, and we'll hope to see you over Creative Life. Now, let's get back to the show. Sam, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Chase. Nice to meet uh, you. Yeah. Uh, well, we have several friends. We just made some small talk before before we started recording. Tim Ferriss being a connection point between the two of us. What a fine gentleman he is. Uh, where do you guys, you guys go back? Um, what, what's the relationship uh, there? Well, the, the, uh, the, the true detail is we go back all the way to the men's room at the TED conference. <laughs> I, think, I think that's where we met. And nice. uh, so it was one of those awkward, you know, do you shake someone's hand? <laughs> oh, I love those but moments yeah, too. Like, like should we great. wash first? Do we high five? Do we elbow touch? Uh, um, uh, I can't remember how we resolved it, but uh, <laughs> friendship ensued. Yeah, clearly it worked, whatever you did. Um, when you find out, when you remember, you should share us uh, that story so that we would know how to do that in all future right. bathroom encounters. There, there may be no right answer. <sighs> um, speaking of no right answer, I also feel the same thing about fear. This is a place where I want to start the conversation today, yeah. in part because of your work around, um, I think, the, the neuroscience of fear. But I'm going to try and bring it down to super practical terms. Uh, as you know, the audience who listens are creators and entrepreneurs. They primarily identify as that or curious. I call them creative curious, curious about um, creativity. And in both like putting a new thing out there, sometimes in just facing your inner demons in order to be able to create or whether you're uh, starting a business, fear plays a huge, huge role in it. And I wanted to start with a little teeny question, which is, what's the biological function of fear? Well, there's a certainly a clear evolutionary function. I mean, you, you know, you, the moment you can move as an organism, it, it matters what you do, right? I mean, so if, if you can't move, then there there are really no choices. But once you can navigate in the environment then the the difference between uh, food and a threat or a mating opportunity, all, all of this becomes important and crucial for survival. And so fear is clearly one of our, you know, along with pain, uh, one of our uh, earliest 
adaptive responses to uh, starkly negative, you know, i.e., dangerous stimuli, or the or or the perceived possibility of of danger, and in in you know this is uh, I don't know how far fear goes down phylogenetically. I mean, it's it's certainly you know every mammal species we would think feels fear, um, but it probably goes you know whether whether conscious or not. The the neurology probably goes deeper than that, um, but in the case of people, we now have tuned up this circuitry to hum along in all kinds of contexts and and in response to you know many hypotheticals that that never come to be and and we can spend a lot of time making ourselves miserable thinking about things that we fear. Uh, or they just merely cause anxiety, and uh, and then you know this is true of every other negative emotion we we can feel. We 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 manage to to run this in simulation much much of the time, and um, yeah, so you know f- fear is. I wouldn't say we ever want to get rid of it because when a a panther jumps out of the bushes, it it seems totally appropriate, even if you're a Buddha, to to be motivated <laughs> to jump back or you know, stab it or, you know, reach for your gun or whatever you, however well armed you are as a Buddha. But it, it what it, it's real utility is in that immediate punctate response, you know, the, the fight or flight response. Uh, but it's, it's rarely useful for, for much longer than that. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's so, you know, I think a, a rough heuristic is, Something like ninety-nine percent of our negative emotional life is not actually useful, right? It's useful. The one percent is. It's a a salience signal, and this, this extends to, to to other negative emotions, to things like outrage and anger and um, disgust. Uh, I mean, it's it's not that you wouldn't want to feel these things ever, but you you don't want them to you don't want them to be appropriated by your mind so much of the time that you're just you're just being ruled by this this general negative attitude toward life and and stress that that doesn't have a an immediate uh, behavioral payoff so uh, yeah you 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 latched on to there at the end why i'm you know kicking off our conversation today with this question because my observation, you know, first of all, my own experience, and second of all, my observation across a large set of people, whether it's here in the audience or Creative Live or uh, just popular culture, is that fear ultimately keeps us from so much joy, from so much opportunity, from so much, um, just from so much. I'll just you know end the sentence there. Fear keeps us from so much. And if, to use your math, you know, I think you said you you – uh, put it all under the umbrella of negative emotions, but if let's just say fear is a big part of that, ninety nine percent of negative emotions that that don't actually help us. The one percent, of course, that's the saber toothed tiger on the horizon that we ought to run from, or pull out our gun, or stab it, or do whatever. But I think that we have taken so much of this fear that is justly attached to the saber toothed tiger and mistakenly applied it to how many likes we get on Instagram, to what people think about the piece of art, the writing, the poetry, the business, or whatever that we put 
you know, put out in the world. And so my question is, is there a way to train ourselves to ignore the fear that doesn't matter and still uh, pay attention to the 1% that does? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the answer to fear or inappropriate fear, not useful fear is the same as the answer to many of these other negative emotions that, that aren't giving you uh, valid information or, or information that you want to dignify as, as being something you want to uh, define your, your behavior by. So, you know, you may let's say you, you, you have to give a public talk, right. And you feel anxious about that, or you, some, you feel some measure of stage fright. Obviously that's very common. That was a big, big issue of mine in the beginning. Um, you, it's, useful up to the point of of inspiring you to actually prepare it's not useful if it if it, it inspires you to close down every opportunity you have to speak in public you know this is something that you know, people do you know they, they they find that they're anxious doing this they don't want to ha- have they don't want something on the calendar that they are going to ruminate about um so they just decide, well, I'm just not going to speak in public for the rest of my life. And you know, how how many people have made that decision? How many people have had their their professional success limited by having made some version of it, which is to say, I'm I'm only going to speak when I can't possibly get out of it, and you know, and and I'm never going to get to the other side of this aversion to doing this. Um, so if I think it's I think we're all right to recognize that that posture of avoidance based on this experience of fear isn't optimal, right? And so many people decide they they want that that's a problem worth solving. You want to get over that. And so the question is how to do that? Well, there are two components to it. One is to just do the thing that you're afraid of and do it enough such that you get a different experience doing it so that your experience is not just one of fear and failure, but you actually have some success that that it starts its own positive cycle of reward, right? You feel good doing it. You know, you get good feedback and that is, that's achievable for virtually everyone doing more or less everything that interests them. It's, it's just the nature of learning new things. Uh, and you obviously you want to, you want to, take what whatever kind of rational approach you can find to doing that you don't want to you know uh, take your first opportunity to speak totally unprepared in front of 5000 people at radio city music <laughs> hall or whatever it is and and then have a a a an experience of public humiliation because you're you're, you're trying stand up comedy and you have no jokes or i mean there's, there's, there are ways to do this badly but if you're going to be something other than a total masochist and and try to uh, put some training wheels on at first, you can easily climb out of this hole with respect to public speaking or anything else. But the other the other component here is just to recognize, and this is where this connects up with meditation and, and mindfulness in particular, you, you can recognize that the experience of fear isn't a problem. The experience of anxiety isn't a problem. You can feel this feeling uh, and simply become interested in it as a a physiological 
phenomenon. I mean, just where is fear? How do you how do you even know that you feel it? And you know, is it in your stomach? Is it in your chest? Is it in your face? And as you bring attention to it, and again, this is this is what the practice of mindfulness is: just paying attention to experience without without resisting it, without judging it, without trying to get rid of it. You find that the half life of fear or any of these other emotions is very very short. So you can actually have the experience of becoming willing to just feel it and noticing that it degrades almost instantly. And the only thing that keeps it going, I mean, the only thing that allows for this experience that many of us have of being in a negative state for you know, hours or even minutes is being lost in thought about the reasons why one is feels this way or should feel this way. So with something like fear, you're thinking about the prospect of failure. You're thinking about how many people are going to be there. Oh my God, my dad's going to be there. Um, you know this uh, this shirt doesn't fit. So you're, you're thinking you're thinking about your problem, and you're not noticing thoughts as as appearances in your mind. And so every one of those thoughts rekindles this emotion of of fear or, or anxiety. But if you can just break the spell of being lost in thought and feel the raw emotion just this cascade of you know adrenaline it it degrades very very quickly and it's i mean i mean you know honestly on the order of of tens of seconds at the longest right so it's just it's, which is to say there is no way to be anxious for 5 minutes without being lost in thought about the reasons why you have to be anxious uh, and so so yeah so that's that's this the second tool here is to is to be willing to feel it and to rob it of its psychological significance, because it, when you feel it as raw sensation, as in like what it feels like in your chest yeah, or your exactly. heart, yeah. like yeah. Okay. Just, then it then it breaks its it breaks its connection to uh, being a statement about who you are as a person, right? It's like it becomes more or less identical to something like an ordinary pain in the body, right? That you could have gotten from, you know, an injury or from just working out, you know, your muscles are sore. Um, you know, there, there, there's the raw sensation and then, there, there, you're, then there's the meaning you make out of it based on your thinking. But the level of raw sensation, it's, it doesn't have any significance until you, until you tell yourself a story about it, right? So it's, it's just like indigestion or a pain in your knee. And so you you wouldn't so when you go out on stage feeling anxious, um, you know most people feel that 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 feeling is so central to who they are as a person that it kind of it brands them as a as an anxious person, right? It, it diminishes them. It's it, it says something about who they are, whereas they wouldn't feel that about a more peripheral or seemingly more peripheral sensation like indigestion or, or a pain in the knee. But it really is just like indigestion or a pain in the knee. It's just sensation. And you can just you can just step back, you know, make more space for it in your mind and be willing to feel it. And it 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 completely uh, deprives it of of any psychological significance. Um, another technique there is to is to reframe it and to, to realize that it, it is so similar to excitement or you know ju just a, a the feeling you get when you're about to do something um, 
uh, you know, thrilling that, that you you actually want to do, but you're you're anxious, but you're anxious about doing it, but it, it doesn't have any of the the um, the truly negative valence of, of real anxiety. So like if you're going to go on a roller coaster or you know you go, you're skiing down a, a steep slope, whatever that feeling is, that that's that's part of what that's part of why you paid to do that. That's <laughs> right. right. You, you literally yeah, paid dollars to put yourself in that same vibe, right? For adrenaline junkies, for example. Exactly right. So you can reframe it as you, you recognizing how similar it is to that, and, and then just use it as energy, right? You can just say this: this is just making me more awake and more committed to to really connecting with this experience. Uh, and so that's sort of a conceptual frame you can put around it, which is slightly different than just being mindful of it. But in any case, it, it is it's quite possible to just decide that fear is not a signal you need to dignify in any given context and and then respond to it differently. So in your introduction, I, I talked about your background in neuroscience and the PhD and all that stuff. And th that explanation was in part scientific, but there's a, a, a beautiful thread in there that's very human and very personal. And it is about our own experience, which is, I think, very Buddhist. Um, I'm wondering, but you also, you indicated that that fear of public speaking, or I think you said being on a stage or whatever was something that was really profound for you. And is this, did you solve your own fears about <laughs> fear through those, those two mechanisms that you just shared with us? Or was there, was there something else? And it, was there a, a personal aspect to it? Like it seemingly you might just, you know, get over your fear of public speaking in, if you could approach those two bullet points that you just shared with us and you, you know, having the background and study that you do. So presumably it took you like 90 seconds to get over your lifelong fear of public speaking, or how can you personalize that for us and make like you, the, you know, wise speaker of this truth about fear. What was your personal experience getting over it? Yeah, I got over it pretty quickly. I mean, what happened is I was someone who did avoid speaking in public for you know, well into my early thirties, right? So it's like I—I I mean, I was—I had a kind of an unconventional decade of my twenties. So there were not many opportunities I—I I, uh, had to decline. But so, so just to give you a, a clear uh, reference point, at in high school, I was picked to be the the valid the valedictorian of my senior class and declined the honor because I didn't want to have to have to give the speech at, at uh, graduation. Right. So, um, and I, you know, told myself a lie and told the, the principal a lie about, you know, why I didn't want to be the valedictorian. Uh, but, you know, part of me knew, all right, this is just, this is me being afraid to do this thing. Right. And, and I, but I just didn't see a path forward to, to get over that fear. Um, so, so, I'm naturally someone who does not want to be the center of attention on a stage, you know, and I'm sure like most uh, of what's interesting about us psychologically, at least half of that is, is a matter of genetics. Uh, so um, that's where I started. I got really into meditation in my uh, you know, early twenties and, you know, through the decade of my twenties spent something like two years on silent meditation retreats, uh, studied, you know, Buddhism and, and other, other, uh, Eastern philosophies. And, um, then, uh, got 
interested in the dialogue in 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 Western philosophy and the sciences of mind around the nature of consciousness, and decided to go back to school and get my PhD. And as you said, I got a PhD in neuroscience, and and it it was once I became a graduate student, I then became faced with with you know the ultimatum to speak in various contexts, and I managed to do very little of it, and again, not really get over my my self concern there, um, which is to say that that merely practicing mindfulness is not the full solution here from my point of view, because I had done a ton of meditation practice, but what what I hadn't done really any of is public speaking. And so the thing, you can't just be mindful of your, your fear or, or, you know, uh, you know, again, I think this is more general than that, but you know, your, your negative emotion that gets provoked by a specific context. But here, here we're talking about, you know, my fear of public speaking, you can't just be mindful of that in the abstract without actually putting yourself in the position to have the experience and get over the fear and and have a different and, and kind of entrain a different response to the, the entire occasion. So uh, without actually doing the public speaking or doing the bungee jumping or doing whatever it is the thing whatever the thing is you're you're avoiding, you can't really get to the other side of that, you know, context specific fear. Um, or at least you're at least you're depriving yourself of of some necessary tools there. So um, so mindfulness was only a, a part of it. I mean, mindfulness helped, in the end. Mindfulness allowed me to get over this problem very very quickly once I realized that there was no avoiding becoming a public speaker. So the the when push really came to shove, I, I had published my first book, or my first book was coming out the the end of faith in two thousand and four, and then I realized, okay, wait a minute as a, an author, <laughs> you need you to have, present your material, right? There's just no way. I mean, you have to do a book tour, right? I mean, they're, they're yeah. completely dependent on you standing up in front of a room, you know, hopefully, you know, larger and larger audiences, uh, and hopefully on television telling people, uh, that you wrote this book and why. And so once I realized I was going to have to do that, I, um, I just, I actually went to, so I had an experience which was about as bad as um, when I when I talk about you know putting training wheels on this and not setting yourself up for needless humiliation. I inadvertently, in, in my search for training wheels, I I, uh, I put myself into a truly humiliating context, uh, which you know could have set me back, but it happily didn't. But so I decided, well, the, the way to the way people have done this. Is they've gone to Toastmasters, right? I mean, Toastmasters uh-huh. is a you know, is set up for this, right? This is for people to overcome their fear of public speaking, and so I, I went to. There was a Toastmasters that that um, met a, at a um, an International House of Pancakes. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, amazing. And so, and so I went. I went there, and uh, I went there with my wife, and uh, you know, and to this. I mean, I've only gone to one Toastmasters, so I, I assume that they're all like this, but. Forgive me, Toastmasters, that this is not <laughs> a general re- recipe, but they they have this this sort of odd ritual where they say you you you, you refer you refer to the Toastmaster as Toastmaster, and and there's this kind of a it's just a there's a level of goofiness. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of an intrinsically embarrassing 
uh, context. And I, I just found myself surrounded w by people who, um, well, let's just say, didn't advertise in their, you know, it, it, there was nothing about them that suggested that they were uh, going to succeed in any way that I was hoping to succeed as a public speaker, right? Like this, this, like this particular table of people seemed like a highly dysfunctional group of people. Uh, and yet I found that my anxiety in speaking to them was as great as it ever could have been. And so I, I, I felt no experience of overcoming, uh, my fear. And yet, um, given the company, uh, and again, this this was a, a, a very odd group of people. It, it just advertised to me that I had, you know, that that my life had really, you know, not turned out very well. Like I found myself in the back of an IHOP with a with a very dysfunctional group of of Toastmasters <laughs> inmates, and um, you know, it had a sort of cuckoo's nest kind of vibe to it, and. I felt like a failure even in that context, right? So, like, it's like there was this whole psychological implosion that happened there. So, like, and, and my wife was my wife was riding shotgun with me, my wife Annika. So we came out of there, uh, you know, you know, she, the, the failed Toastmaster and uh, his wife, uh, who, was, who was looking at him with um, some degree of concern at that point because she knew, you know, what, what was in store for me. I mean, I had a a book tour uh, now just a few weeks ahead of me. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I realized, okay, I, I'm not quite sure how I, how I put training wheels on this, but I'm just going to do the events that are scheduled and, and the events that were scheduled were fairly high stakes. I mean, they were, they were not small audiences that the book for whatever reason got some, uh, immediate publicity and it was on a controversial enough topic that, you know, I, I would, the, having the to defend of, some serious ideas in front of these yeah. people, right? And some of these were actually public debates, and some were actually some things were televised. And so, um, I just immediately found myself, you know, on a stage in front of hundreds of people, and in some cases with cameras, and just I just had to function. And um, that's where the mindfulness piece becomes indispensable because mindfulness really is just this capacity to be willing to experience whatever is in, in fact truly here in the present moment and to let go of what just happened, whether that was an hour ago or five minutes ago or, or, or five you know, seconds ago and, and to keep beginning again. And that really is the antidote to all of the perseveration and, and rumination and, uh, negative self-concept we generate. So, I mean, so like I had that Toastmasters experience. The crucial piece is not the experience. The crucial piece is how long did I spend thinking about it and how, how much did I make it a basis for worrying about the future? And mm. I mean, you can overcome embarrassment in a matter of seconds, right? I mean, this is, this is really the art of living well. I mean, you're, there's no way you're going to live a life that's just so impregnable against embarrassment or or um, shame or or you know any of these starkly negative emotions, such that you will never experience them. You will you are guaranteed to experience everything on the menu, 
the question is how long does it last and then what do you and, and what residue does it form in your mind and, and what do you then do on that basis and you know in that case i just over the course of honestly not that many public lectures and and you know interviews and other performances i just got over it and you know now i'm the guy now my negative trains of thought at a public lecture are really more around, you know, why are those seats empty, right? Like how did fill <laughs> this place, right? You know, I, I want more bodies and seats. Um, so it's it's. Uh, it, I mean, it was very it was very nice to to overcome that whole issue, and and it's it's a very it's a very as a kind of a potted example of being someone who really was not set up well to do this thing naturally. Um, I, I can, you know, I can honestly attest that there, you can absolutely conquer that specific fear, and then have a very different attitude toward the experience. Yeah, for the people listening, that is, again, this is the action over the intellect, right? There's the experience of doing the thing over and over, in spite of the fear. Even you know, Toastmasters, like, okay, that that was or wasn't a primer for you, but what did you? What was the ultimate solution? Was to actually take the action. All you have to do to be the noun is do the verb, right? Not to not to base it in language, but as soon as you were standing on a public stage and actually moving your mouth, you were a public speaker. And the, the fear part was second. That's part to, to me that is fascinating is so much of fear is a delusion, right? We, yeah, I would actually, I would also say it's an action itself. I mean, all of these emotions are, they're really subtle behaviors. Right, I mean, there, there's something you're doing on on a basic level. There, there's a because you can it when, when you become aware of the the process, you see that. It, but for your own action, but for your own continuous entanglement with thought, these these emotions degrade very very quickly. So you have to keep them going, and so it is a it's a kind of behavior. I mean, it's a kind of you know, it's a, it's a neurological behavior. It's a, it's an endocrine behavior. It's, it's a glandular behavior. I mean, you're, you know, it's, 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 all, it's like you, you're reaching down and squeezing your adrenal glands with your, with your fist, right? I mean, it's like you're, you're, you're doing something and it's based on a, a kind of prediction about the future. Um, and you can, the truth is you can just stop doing that, right? It's, it's, it's you know, the, the coarser version would be like you're, you're walking around pinching yourself and then wondering wondering about why you're so uncomfortable and then trying to convince yourself that you know you should avoid these situations in which you feel this this discomfort but you you need to discover the action that is you need to find your hand and and stop pinching yourself and and that's and that's what in this case mindfulness allows you to do but if you if you don't allow yourself to you're you're not going to fix yourself in advance of doing these, of putting yourself in these situations that you're, you're afraid of. You have to put yourself in the situations because you're, you're just, you can't, you know, in the, in the darkness of your closed eyes while you're meditating, you, you know, again, I, med, I you know, I consider meditation an, an essential tool for all of this, but it's not this, it's not sufficient to conquer any of these, you know, context specific Years. And so, I mean, this is much more the, in the wheelhouse of something like cognitive behavioral therapy, where you're, where you, in a systematic way, you, you, you encounter 
the stimulus you fear, whether it's, you know, you're, you're, you're afraid of elevators or you're afraid of public speaking and you, you decondition that response. Necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. Um, so I want to put a pin in the fear part. I do. I, I, I'm fascinated by it because I think not just in creativity and in, in, you know, writing books or creating plays or building businesses or whatever you could harness the term creativity to that, but in so much of life, but what the last, you know, 10 minutes have taught us, I think is how related fear is a to our biology and B to our psychology. So I'm curious now let's, let's explore the intersection between those two things. The, um, the sort of glandular, uh, we are, um, you know, biological organisms moving through space and time with, uh, our heart pumping and all this other stuff. And yet there's this, the mindful part or the mind, um, now uh, revealing, I was uh, a PhD candidate at the university of Washington in philosophy and oh, nice. I, I dropped out of that. So I'm, I'm just, I know just enough to be dangerous, but not enough to talk, um, adequately about these things. So forgive me, but you said just a moment ago that you know, you describe mindfulness as essential. And for those folks out there who um, don't have a meditation or a mindfulness practice, what role does that play in your life? And what would you prescribe for someone who is either dubious or unfamiliar or um, is just not a meditator or a mindfulness practice, or I'm wondering if you can talk mm. to me about the role that it plays in your life. And then what advice would you give to someone who's um, suspicious or I guess um, agnostic towards it? Mm. Yeah. Well, so, you know, there are reasons to be suspicious. I, I completely understand those reasons because of its uh, one, it's it's being hawked as you know, it, it's it's very faddish now to to be into mindfulness. It's being hawked as a, a solution to everybody's problem, and in some ways, it's being it's it's connection to you know, the scientific research on mindfulness is being oversold, and its connection to and and its real promise is being undersold. I mean, it's kind of a, a paradox here where people are putting the 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 emphasis on the wrong place from my point of view. So for instance, th there's research that shows that mindfulness is good for you in all kinds of ways. I mean, everything from boosting your immune system to staving off cortical thinning, you know, age-related cortical degeneration. Uh, and it's, you know, and it, it's clearly a, a method for, for controlling stress and, and negative emotion. And th there's a long list of, of reasons why you might want to practice mindfulness in the same way that you might want to quit smoking or work out more or or eat uh, whatever diet is has been deemed healthy in the last 24 hours. <laughs> the fact that we can't agree on what to eat is is pretty humbling here. Uh, but I that's not the the that's not the way I recommend people look into mindfulness as, as something they, they may want to take up. Uh, I think all of that's true. I think some of the, some of that research is still provisional and, and may get overturned. Uh, but the truth is, even if it were all overturned, n none of my reasons for recommending mindfulness would be touched. In fact, I would recommend it 
even if we knew it were a little, it was a little bit bad for you in the end, like that there was some risk to it. And, um, you know, in the same way that I would recommend, I mean, it's, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's something like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? Now you could be selling people Brazilian jiu-jitsu because it's a great way to get in shape. But the reality is, is that it's, yeah, I mean, it is a great way to get in shape, but it's also a great way to get injured. And there are other ways to get in shape that don't have the same injury profile. And it's just BJJ, the reason to do BJJ is not purely as a matter of fitness. If, if, if that's why you're doing it, you're not understanding how amazing BJJ is, right? And, and, and just what, the, what, what an experience of self-overcoming awaits you when, when you really get into it. Um, so the, 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 the reason to take mindfulness seriously is deeper than, than most of the, the, um, the arguments you hear in its favor at the moment. Um, and it really, it really comes down to the recognition that all you have in any moment is your mind. I mean, as a matter of experience, that's what you've got. You know, whatever the relationship between mind and body is, and we can be, we can safely say there is one, uh, and whatever the relationship between the mind and the world is, or, or you know, reality at large, um, you know, the, the the jury's out on on some fundamental questions of epistemology there. But you know, even if we're in a simulation, even if you're you're in the matrix, even if you're confused about everything that is in fact true at the base layer of reality, the one thing you can be sure of is that in this moment and in every moment of experience, you have consciousness and its contents, right? And therefore, if you want to understand what's possible in this space, what can be noticed, what can be trained, what what can be um, discovered, uh, it makes sense to pay more careful attention to the character of your experience moment to moment. I mean, the truth is you can either notice your experience very, very clearly in each moment, or you can be kind of barely in touch with it because you're so busy talking to yourself, right? You're just lost in thought in each moment. And, you know, that takes a little, that may not land for everybody, but there's some people who think that they're, they're not lost in thought. Uh, and, you know, that they just need to take a little time to pay attention to see that that's uh, not the case. But I mean, I mean, so uh, I guess I'll put it as a challenge here, you know, for everyone listening, and, and unless you've practiced a lot of meditation and have, you know, or have unusual powers of concentration, here is a, a statement of fact. If you tried to pay attention to anything, your breath or a sound or a sight for the next 30 seconds without getting lost in thought, you won't, you will not be able to do it, right? You may think you've done it because you're, you're, you'll be so distracted by thought that you'll, you'll not even notice that you're, your failure to, to pay attention. But so you'll be, you'll be thinking, well, what the fuck is he talking about? I'm paying attention right now. And this is, you know, this is going fine, but you didn't notice that thought, right. That came up from behind and, and completely, uh, subsumed your attention. So if you're going to attempt to pay attention to the breath or even just the sound of my voice. I mean, just follow the, the import of these sentences without getting distracted by the voice in your head. 
that is something that, again, even, even if your life depended on it, you will not be able to, to do for 30 seconds at a stretch. And that, that at, at the very least, should interest you, right? I mean, that, that's an amazing status quo for us. Uh, and it, it, it's a status quo that is the basis for all of our mental suffering, right? Every bad day you've ever had, every bad mood you've ever had has been mediated by this automaticity of you being diverted into thought without knowing it and having a, an unhappy conversation with yourself. Uh, and so mindfulness is the, is the method of, of paying more careful attention to your experience such that you can break this spell of being helplessly borne away by thought for, you know, for almost every moment of your life. You know, in, in, in good moments and in bad, I mean, the, the truth is, even when we're getting exactly what we want out of life, even when, you know, everything has just come together and we're having the perfect experience or what promises to be the perfect experience, even in those cases, it's hard for most people to, to really surrender to the experience in the present moment. I mean, we find ourselves looking over the shoulder of the present moment toward what's coming next and 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 so we we you know one of the the greatest sources of uh, of dissatisfaction for those of us who are lucky enough to have incredibly happy lives that are filled with opportunity and and you know we we have goals and then we meet those goals and we and we you know we we just we have to-do lists and we we check all the things off eventually and it, it's all going well we still find that we're continually deferring, you know, just tacitly deferring our happiness to such a time as as we've we've gotten to some point in the future, some place on the horizon that we were trying to get to. Whether it's the thing we're looking forward to on the weekend, or you know, the project that we're you know we have a deadline that's tomorrow and it's finally going to be done. These these landmarks we put out in front of us, and we find that when we get there. Our, our attention doesn't, as a matter of course, truly land in this place of, of anything like durable satisfaction. I mean, everything is a kind of mirage unless you can be happy in this moment, right? I mean, the, the, the mm -hmm. aphorism here is you, you actually can't become happy. You can only be happy. And what we're, what we're, what we're all looking for is a good enough reason to, uh, to truly understand that. Right, we're we're looking for a good enough reason to to let our attention fully land in the present moment. And the truth is, you don't need a good reason. You just need the ability to do it with your by seizing the reins of your attention. And that's what mindfulness is. Mm. Very prescient. And I want to now throw some darts at mm. some some historical. Um, Let's see what's the way we're saying this. I'll use our mutual friend Tim Ferriss. One of the when I was initially talking to him about the power and the benefits of meditation, at some point we've been talking about this for weeks, and I remember the the conversation like it was yesterday. He's like, "Okay, look, it. I figured out what it is. All my life, I believe that all of the the hard work and the grit and the grinding when no one else is willing to do that work, and I'm in the trenches doing it." that 
that has been the the maker of my success and that I'm afraid that all of this sort of meditation and calmness and the concept of being mindful that just erases my edge. And I've come to find out that this desire to not give up the perceived uh, benefit of (laughs) being an aggro person or grinding or all of the other things that have been glorified in our culture as the thing that stands in our way. When I think if you ask the Buddha or a monk or I don't, I'll ask you in just a second, but when it's actually maybe even the anchor the thing that's keeping us from our potential. So for those folks out there who are doubting and for whom the concept of meditation is removing the edge or the intensity that we have been rewarded, uh, you know, throughout our lives as the thing that delivered us all of our benefits or all of our wins, what do you say to those people? Uh, well, actually, I just thought of the perfect analogy for Tim here. <laughs> okay, I can't wait. I'll this, share it with him via text after we get off. This, this analogy might not work across the board, but it really is okay. perfect, Tim, here. So the, the idea that if you begin practicing mindfulness, uh, especially this is especially true of Tim, that you're, you're, you're suddenly going to become too calm, too lacking in ambition and willpower and, and grit and, 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 you know, type A. Uh, uh, commitments um, that really is analogous to the person who goes into a gym for the first time and and says, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure I want to lift weights because I don't want to get too big. I don't want to build too much muscle. Like, like it's just it, it suggests a misunderstanding of of the process. I mean, there's you know there, there are people who walk into a gym and they're afraid that they're accidentally going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. Uh, and because they don't understand how much work the average person would have to put in to be like, you know, to have biceps like Arnold. Um, so on some level, it's, it's the same misapprehension here. So it's like the idea that practicing 20 minutes or even two hours a day of, of mindfulness is going to so rob you of your, uh, of your, of your neurosis and your, you know, your ambition or your, or your other interests. I mean, it's just, it's just not in the cards. I mean, you know, there's some people, it's not in the cards, even for people who spend a significant amount of time on retreat. Usually, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just, it's like, I, I spent a lot of time on retreat, but the truth is there, you know, I I didn't become a, a monk and there were other things I wanted out of life. And there, there's still things I, I want out of life that are not synonymous with, by just practicing more mindfulness, monkdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's um, yeah. I mean that that's not the the problem. I mean, and and the truth is the the ambition. I mean, it, it re, the truth is if if you get insofar as you can get rid of your your bad reasons for wanting to do good things, you can find good reasons to want to do those those good things. Right. It's like like you know, ambition, you know, to get various projects done need not be driven from behind by a, a, a lack of self-worth or, you know, fear that you're, you know, not no enough. one's going to love you yeah, unless yeah. You, 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 you publish another best-selling book or, you know, a fear that you're going to be forgotten if you, you know, take time off or whatever it is, you know, ego, ego fears are not the only way, not the only reservoir of energy and, and they're, and they're not the best reservoir. Now, 
I mean, I, I think it, you know, in the limit, it's it's reasonable to ask whether if everyone fully internalized the values of of you know, you know true you know wisdom and, and and spirituality to use a somewhat loaded word uh, would would that be um, uh, synonymous with our you know with some people not doing everything they would have otherwise done well well yes right I mean there's some people who are doing uh, amazing things based on their their neurosis on some insecurities or neurosis yeah 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 Uh, but you know it's just it comes down to what you want out of life i mean how do you how do you want to feel and how far in the future do you want to uh defer your happiness and 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 it's it's um you know by by default most of us spend far too long in life treating it like a kind of rehearsal for the real life that's going to be in the future when we finally get all of these these unpleasant tasks behind us right we're not we're just we're we're telling us ourselves a story about why we can't be truly satisfied now and why you know it's not until until we get over all of these these um obstacles on this, uh, on this landscape of the, the, even even the, the immediate future, but but even the distant future. I mean, people have you know a five year plan, that, you know, the, the, you know the execution of which will only put them on the threshold of the thing they think is going to make them happy. Um, it's just you. There's there are no guarantees. You have that much time, and even the, the, the whole structure of that is based on confusion about what's you know about what's possible here. I mean. The, the, the the real way to have a happy life is to figure out how to have a process that is satisfying right it's not a matter of reaching goals the the process itself has to be the goal you know if you can't figure out a process that you love well then you're going to spend most of your life not loving your life right so that's that's the and and so much of that is not a matter of changing you know the 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 external circumstances in life, although you know obviously those sometimes need to be changed, and and those changes can be very positive. But so much of it is just one's framing and one's one's actual use of attention in each moment. I mean, if mm-hmm. if being locked in a room, this is why meditation can be such a a revelation, because if you, you know if you once you know how to meditate, and you you know let's say you go on a meditation retreat for a month. Yeah, you can recognize that you know you can sit alone in a room with nothing but your mind, and be and experience the deepest happiness you've ever felt in your life. Right? I mean, it's just the, the deepest forms of well-being based on what you're doing with your attention. And yet, you know, if that's possible, that means that that well-being is not actually dependent on almost anything you're 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 seeking in life it's not dependent on relationships really it's not dependent on on you know the, the normal range of pleasures I'm, I'm not saying relationships aren't important in in general but uh the truth is you all you have is your mind and if you can find I- intrinsic well-being by paying attention differently to the, the character of experience um that becomes a kind of 
superpower because you recognize it's possible to be happy before anything happens, but before you find the right relationship, before you you get to the the end of whatever project you're 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 on, and um, I mean before you succeed, actually, you know. So it's um that's that, that's not that, doesn't, that need not give you a reason not to do you know tons tons of different things that interest you and that you 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 know learning new skills and meeting new people and I mean all of that can be uh, a part of this same picture, but it is different approaching those things trying to fill a hole in yourself that needs to be filled and that can't be filled uh, and actually recognizing that you're already happy before you you make any of those efforts to to what if any do you attribute the so we're saying no to cause and effect like if i get this thing then i'll be happy and to what do you or if any at all is there uh, whether your commentary might be about the co- the quantum field, for example, like if I'm happy, then I will achieve the things that I want in the world. Is there a world in which your what you believe and ascribe to reality where you've flipped that script at all? Do you can you postulate into the quantum field and and make things happen, manifest, if you will? Yeah, no, I wouldn't put it in terms of of um physics or or metaphysics i mean it's, it's not i mean there there's a there's a kind of cause and effect here that's sort of ordinary and and psychological and sociological which is you know if you're if you're already happy right you, you know, there there are many things you're doing and ceasing to do uh in relationship to others that that will propagate their own effects right mm-hmm. so if you like if you're if you um I mean, if you're if you're hungry, if you're if you're wearing your ego on your sleeve, you know, if you're not self-confident, if you're constantly comparing yourself yourself to others, if you're envying their success and you know begrudging them their accomplishments, um, if you're um, if you know you're, if you're disposed to compare yourself to them just continuously, you know, looking down on the people you can look down on and, and envying the people you look up to, all of that. Uh, inevitably leaks out of you into the world and people notice and none of that is attractive right i mean none of that is, yeah. is i mean people people just want to get away from you as fast as possible and and you know that'll be something that will then affect your 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 plan to become a successful person right so mm-hmm. um it's much more attractive to be someone who is comfortable in their own skin and can genuinely admire uh, and and celebrate the accomplishments of other people and to be happy for them when they succeed. I mean, I mean, take the take the clearest and you know and and even most poignant case. I mean, this is an experience I'm sure many people have had where you know you could have a very close friend who succeeds at something, right? Like you, you know, they, they, they win a prize or they get a great job or they, you know, they, they make a ton of money or whatever it is. And it's, it's very common for people to experience in that moment, something less than being overjoyed for someone who is ostensibly your, your close friend, even your best friend, right? I mean, just to feel in yourself, this poverty 
of connection to them because you're worried about yourself, right? What you're feeling is envy. You're, what you're feeling is diminished by their happiness. That's a really ugly place to be, right? It's it's the antithesis of friendship in that moment. I mean, it's it's, it's not you know you're definitely if you I mean, you might think in the abstract that you love this person, but you don't in that moment, not really, right? You what you what you love is your you know your yourself in some morbid way, right? I mean, in, in some way that's not actually delivering the goods, right? If you really loved yeah. yourself, you'd realize that your friend's happiness is totally compatible with your own. In fact, it's a source of your own happiness because you actually love this person, right? You want this person to be happy and you want this person to succeed. If you had a magic wand, you would wave it in their direction and give them, you know, all everything they want in life, right? You would, you would, you, what you want your friend is, what you want for your friend is for, is for him or her to realize all of their aspirations, mm -hmm. right? So the fact that your your face is frozen in in something less than 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 happiness, rather you've got this weird rictus smile upon hearing that your friend just you know cashed in his Uber shares or whatever uh, to bring it back to Tim. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, that's just a, that's a place no one wants to be, right? And, yeah. um, and so I mean, actually, the, you know, there's there's a, a meditation practice that targets that explicitly within Buddhism. There's there's metta practice, which is loving kindness practice, uh, but the the adjacent emotion that that uh, meditators train is called sympathetic joy, and that's that's the joy in the joy of others, the joy in the in the happiness of others, and. I mean, clearly, you want to get out of this zero-sum perception of you know somebody else's. You know, there's only ten dollars of happiness in the world, and and once your friend gets some, you know, that's once your friend gets two, well, that's two less for you. Um, and uh, that it's really only living an examined life. I mean, just paying attention to what it's like to be you, moment to moment, in all these situations, that that reveals this kind of, um, you know, less than optimal, uh, default state. And this is, it's, you know, the, on some level, at least in the beginning, but even for the longest time, meditation is a, an experience of, of being surprised by how, by the, these ugly corners of your mind. I mean, to just discovering yourself intentions and assumptions that are are deeply unflattering, but again, mindfulness gives you the capacity to let go of that, and and, and even find a a sense of humor in all of that. I mean, it's just you know, it, on some level, it is one embarrassment after another to see what your mind is like when it's and, capable of. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I think that the. Um... So let's let Tim off the hook here because okay. I got to throw him under the bus. Like his intensity, he believed was the thing that got him to where he was. And um, I was able to, I'm going to throw well, myself. Not, I mean, just to add one piece there, it's not that that's necessarily wrong. It's just clearly he can be, or anyone like him can be intense uh, in nearly the same way, but without the component of psychological suffering. You know, it's like you can you can decide. Uh, I mean, a gym uh, again, again, a workout in a gym is is a good analogy here. It's like you can you can approach that. I mean, that within its frame, you can approach that with 
with as much with a hundred percent intensity, right? And experience what you're experiencing there is real physical stress, and yet when you leave the when you leave the gym, you put down the stress, right? I mean, you you don't you're not continually tensing your muscles and racing your heart when you're when you've left the gym, right? I mean, that would be unhealthy. But within its frame, you can just you know you can just just gun the engine as as uh, high as it'll go and um there's a psychological equivalent to that it's not i'm not saying that every form of psychological stress is negative but you want to be able to put it down the moment you want the moment it makes sense to put it down right and so yeah. uh and and the, and the, the the suffering component is an inability to do that right like you can't, you get to the weekend and you find no, you can't. You can't enjoy the company of your family because you are you're, you're busy. Uh, you're stuck. You're in a kind of prison of your own ambition, and um, and then then you have to reflect on just what you actually want your life to be like, moment to moment, and wh- and where is where is happiness in this moment? That's a perfect segue again to let Tim off the hook. Yeah. Um, I personally wasn't hung up on the intensity piece. I found that as soon as I had meditated, I'm a TM guy. And as soon as I had done that uh, for, I would say, even just a matter of weeks that I, I found that things happened uh, more more effortlessly and the world was happening for me rather than to me. But another confession here, my wife is a mindfulness teacher, um, studying with Jack Kornfield, Ram Dass, Jack Brock. Sherry Huber, a bunch of Buddhist monks. And so a, a conversation I find myself, I used to find rather repeatedly getting into her is like, how do you be in that state, mindfulness, aware, um, joyful, and still have desire? How can you have a preference if acceptance, radical acceptance is a key tenant? How, how do goals, um, how, how can you <laughs> reconcile goals and a preferred outcome to being present in the moment and being in like, and not, there's no gap between where you are and where you want to be, because that would lead to suffering. How do I reconcile those in, in your, your world? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. You just from a, um, a psychological and contemplative point of view, I, I mean, I there's, there's two levels to that answer. I mean, well, one is it does come back to the I don't want to become too big like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the gym <laughs> because the reality is that no matter how much you meditate, you're going to spend most of your time lost in thought and then you'll be, you know, you'll, you'll be diverted based on the character of those thoughts. So if, you know, if in, if when you're distracted, you're someone who just loves ice cream, well, you're, you're still going to love ice cream and you'll, you know, you're not going to forget about ice cream anytime soon. Uh, and if you're getting ice cream is punctuated by moments of mindfulness, well, that's all to the good. But the reality is, is you're, you're going to find that, you know, you just, you want various things in life and you're, you're, you're going to steer your life in the direction of those things. And it's, it's probably, it probably is true that most of the time there's some degree of attachment, you know, to use, you know, Buddhist terminology here. Or, or craving that is at the bottom of all that. But it, you know, the question is, is that, is that a big deal? 
And if you're not, you know, really harming yourself or harming other people, you know, if you if you have an ethical code that is keeping, you know, the wheels on the bus and uh, you're, you're attuned to the, the illusoriness of, of the, uh, the gratification ultimately like there's no scoop of ice cream that is that is big enough or sweet enough that is going to cure you for all time of your desire for for pleasure right you know this the half-life of that satisfaction is is, is again going to be very short and you you can you know there, there's not much at stake there you, you can live a very happy life and punctuate it with as much mindfulness as as you can muster and it only gets better and better and it may be in the limit you then have to really drill down on, okay, exactly, is it, is it even possible to choose what flavor of ice cream I want if I'm, if I'm a Buddha, right? If I'm mindful, like, like would, would there be any preference at all if I'm liberating every thought as it arises? Um, and I, you know, I, the truth is I don't know what I think there. I think it's probably true that, that even if your mindfulness were truly unbroken, you, you wouldn't suddenly like things that you currently hate and not like things that you, I mean, they wouldn't equalize everything. On, on some level, it equalizes experience because your, your sense of well-being on some level is, is no longer hooked to the, the change, changes in the contents of consciousness. So you're not you're not putting much weight or really any weight on on change in the next moment uh, because the the satisfaction of of just being has become so vivid that it's just it's um, it's a kind of outshining you know whatever changes you you might notice but um, you know if if you're someone who hates broccoli you know I think you might still hate broccoli insofar as you can even notice that that there's broccoli on on your pole right <laughs> you know, i mean it's because uh, it, otherwise it, it seems like it would be then you're then you're asking us to believe that a you know a buddha if you if you brought him into a buffet and you're like he wouldn't be able to navigate the buffet because he just wouldn't be able to choose what he liked or didn't have no like. preference on anything <laughs> you're going to have some stupid buddhas out there who, who uh um can't function and uh yeah so i but again it's just the the common experience here, you know, you know judge, certainly judging from uh, my experience, is that it's not a matter of getting rid of any of these states of mind permanently, right? It's like you, you, you will feel desire, you will feel fear, you will feel anxiety, you will feel anger. These, these emotions continually arise, but the question there is, what do they mean and how and, and how long do they last right how long how how much are you taken in by them and you know how quickly can you let go of them once you recognize that that's the the skillful thing to do and you know once you really know how to to practice the answer is very very quickly i mean you can you can drop your problem uh immediately uh, honestly, and it's it, and it's not always the right thing to do. But if it's not if, if it's not the right thing to do, well, then you can hold on to it for as long as seems necessary. So it's you know, I'm not saying that you know you never want to be angry. Say I mean ang- anger can be functional, uh, but 
it tends not to be functional for, for very long, right? It's it's much much more useful to to orient toward the problem and then try to solve it from the, from a different place. Uh, so one uh, question that I'm attempting to summarize this sort of bit on mindfulness, and it's going to seem like a paradox if you have been listening for the last uh, you know 30 minutes, and if it'll seem natural if you haven't, but uh, I would love you to try and fill in the, sure. the blank here. Um, what role does mindset play in human performance? Well, I, I think it's virtually everything, right? I mean, it's the totality of your of your cognitive and emotional tools in, in any moment, right? Like if, if you know how to do something well, that is a statement on some level about your mind, right? You're not now some of the some of these mental properties are are, are unconscious. I mean the, the, the natural course of learning any anything is to be consciously learning it uh, and more and more shoving the, the, that those those conscious principles into unconscious parts of your mind such that you you now no longer have to think about what to do or how to do it and 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 when you really learn something well you know especially a kind of physical action you know like a how to swing a golf club or how to ride a bike you know you, you no longer even understand how you know how to do it right you just it becomes it basically all becomes unconscious and um so so many skills are like that but to be able to do something well uh and and or to fail to do it well, even when you you should know how to do it well, so much of that is a matter of one's mental state while doing it. Yeah, I, I just it, it's hard for me to overstate to anyone listening. I, I'm in my book, Creative Calling. I, I've been beating this book, this drum for a long time, and to have your, I think your fine point <laughs> pen on it, it's that if you're basically your experience is the sum of what's going on in your mind, then it's everything, right? It's, it's almost literally everything. If where you place your attention is, um, <laughs> what, what matters then the quality of that attention, the, um, amount of the attention, it seems like it, it's virtually everything. Um, well, it is, it is everything as a matter of experience. It, it is literally everything. everything. Yeah, literally. Even your body. I mean, what you're calling your body is an appearance in consciousness. It's a, it's a visual appearance. If you look down at your body, or if you look at yourself in a mirror, and it's a it's a sensory uh, appearance. It's you know it's it's the, the feelings of of temperature and movement and pressure and and uh, pain and it's uh, you know you have senses that beyond the five you know, like you know proprioception. I mean, all of these things are appearing in consciousness in some way, and you read on that constellation of appearances, this, this form you're calling your body. And, you know, this can break down in various ways, but, um, you know, that you then layer upon that all of these conceptual framings and interpretations of what these appearances mean, right? So you name it to take, take pain, for example, and then you might have just had the, the greatest workout of your life yesterday where you, you know, you deadlifted, you know, twice what you had ever deadlifted before. And now your, your legs and back are sore. Uh, well, 
you know, you'd be disappointed if they weren't sore, right? I mean, this is this is a sign of progress. This is you know, the, the, the soreness, while it might be intrinsically unpleasant, you love it, right? You've learned to love it because it has a certain meaning for you. Uh, whereas if you if you hadn't worked out in in recent memory and you woke up and your legs and back were sore, you would you would immediately be looking for some kind of medical interpretation and some, some you would assume there's something wrong with you you know you maybe you've maybe you've got um uh you know maybe this is one of the si- signs of covid right that hasn't been well publicized right they can you're googling leg and back soreness um and all of a sudden you're worried and the difference there is entirely at the at the level of of thought and so it's all a matter i mean it's it's this is all impressively similar to what we experience in dreams, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's just your, your brain, we're, we're, we all, we're already brains in vats, right? I mean, we're all, you know, it's, everything is being run in emulation in this, in, in this computer we, we, we have, uh, which, which, uh, is, is made of meat in our <laughs> case. Um, and, uh, you know, even the outside world. I mean, it's 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 all mediated by this this vision born of our neurophysiology, and it's um, it, and if we know anything, you know, from personal experience and from you know now at least you know several decades of of um, you know fairly careful neuroimaging work and and a, a century of of neurological work before that, um, we know that, it, that human experience is, is amazingly plastic, right? I mean, it's, it changes. This, this machine changes based on how you use it. And um, so, yeah, I, mean, I, I would encourage people to view this, plastic, this plasticity as, as a, an opportunity, right? I mean, you can, you're only by tendency being uh, exactly like the person you were yesterday right and that's based on on what you're tending to do and if you if you decide to do things differently you will you will become different in many important ways and so you, you can steer this um, in in ways that are far more auspicious than uh, auspicious than you would be uh, you're, you know you're, you're liable to, to, to find by accident. Right, so that this is why keeping wise company and and reading good books and and considering things is is useful. Speaking of considering things, one of my ways that I lament my past study of philosophy of, you know, uh, again I was at the University of Washington, which is um, was very, um, I don't know, is I, I was not I was a black sheep in this particular community, and mm. um, what I lamented was the the um not necessarily the academic rigor but the the frameworks for talking about it relative to what the layperson's experiences were there was such a gap in the language for example because i want to make this stuff accessible and whatever dan dennett wrote or husserl or heidegger or the i mean uh, evolutionary biology or cognitive science seemed to me to be there's just this vast disconnect between all the language and the people that were in that small space and how to make it useful for so many people out in the world. And my goal is to try and to make it useful. And 
to that end, you have done such an amazing job. I want to say congratulations and invite you to talk a little bit about um, your app. Um, oh, oh, thank you. 22,000 five-star reviews on 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 uh, iTunes is nothing to <laughs> to shrug at. That's amazing. And but it just makes things so accessible. And for anyone who's interested in meditation or mindfulness, I'm wondering, Sam, if you can talk about it a little bit. What was the inspiration behind creating it? And you know, how would you encourage people to participate in a way that's accessible? Because a lot of the words that we're throwing around here are big. This is some heady stuff, but the effects are you know, once you experience it, all the language really kind of fades into the background. Yeah, well, so so the app is is called Waking Up, and uh, it's derivative of of a book I wrote by that title. I wrote I wrote a book, Waking Up, in twenty fourteen, which is my effort to synthesize you know so called spiritual experience, you know, the, the kinds of things we've been talking about, mindfulness and and contemplative practice, uh, things like self transcendence, with um, to understand those things in a in a context that is scientific and and um, rational, right? I mean, you know, in my other job, I've spent a lot of time criticizing religious dogmatism and and what I consider to be unfounded belief. And uh, so I, I want to from my to, ignorant ancestors, as I once heard you put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for whom for whom a wheelbarrow would have been a breathtaking example of emergent technology. Uh, you know, so this is um, clearly. I, I think we want to understand human well-being, whatever its prospects, in 21st century terms, right? So we, you know, and all we have is is human conversation by which to to make sense of of uh, the possibilities of experience here. And so, um, you know, I've been trying to have that conversation and in a totally non-sectarian and, and rational way. And so I wrote the book, Waking Up, but. The truth is, an app is just a much better delivery system for these concepts than a book is. I mean, because it, you know, audio is is the perfect medium to guide people to to have these kinds of insights in in real time. And it's it's it's, it's very it's different than reading a text. It's not to say that reading books about meditation or or philosophy can't be transformative, but it's it is it's just a different way of getting. The, the guidance. And, and so, um, you know, I didn't know, I, I, I it actually took, took me a while to, to release the app. I, w I was, um, kind of a, a reluctant and, um, <laughs> a, a reluctant entrepreneur and, and one who now has a, a painful and expensive education in, in, w in what it takes to, to build an app. Um, so, um, that's another, another topic, but, um, I finally, you know, finally got it released and, yeah, and I'm just incredibly happy and feel incredibly lucky uh, to to have this technology available because it's it's um it's amazing to just have a, a place where I can put audio content, you know, as it occurs to me to to create it and to and to, to solicit other teachers and content. I mean, I now have at least four other people uh, who have produced you know tracks for. Um, for the for the waking up uh, app, um, and it's uh, yeah, it's just it's on some level it's just a, a glorified MP3 player. I mean, it really is just I haven't gone to video on it; it's just audio. But in some ways, audio is more powerful than video for this. Can, on, on on some level, video is just a distraction. So um, 
yeah, I just feel very lucky to be at a, you know living at a time where the, the technology is available to to bring this to uh, to people in a way that scales, right? I mean, you can just you know you can it's um uh, it's just amazing to me to to uh, have something out there that people can download and and uh, it's just perpetually available to them and it it actually is helpful. I mean, the, the measure of that is you know it's perversely or or, or bizarrely. It's even helpful to me to listen to my own guided meditations in, in the process of editing them, right? Because it's like any guided meditation is just a a mindfulness alarm, right? You just ha- you're just having someone remind you that you're supposed to be paying attention, and you know, no matter how much you've practiced, that will increase the amount of the number of moments you 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 pay attention in any period of time. Um, so it's. Um, yeah, it just it's it's amazing that the te- technology is here that and it works so well. Yeah, if if anyone's out there um, unsure how you should spend your time learning more about Stanley, this is very very powerful uh, and very practical, as as um, Sam you just said with the the near immediate results of meditation. I mean, just the concept of taking a breath. Like, what else can lower your blood pressure ten points in ten seconds? Right, just yeah. by, by being able to calm your mind and your breath, um, as one does um, with this. And speaking of audio, um, to to maybe a bit of a non sequitur, but connecting your podcast um, with you know, obviously that's audio. And what is your relationship between the uh, the app and all of its you know, the mindfulness exercises. Um, I particularly enjoyed your description of mushroom trip for anyone out there listening, <laughs> search Sam Harris mushroom trip, uh, or in the app. I think it's, it's, it's in the app is where I maybe heard it first. I've since watched the YouTube visuals of the clouds and whatnot, but right. the audio experience of that is just amazing. And as is your podcast making sense. What's the relationship between, is there any between the app, your work there and the creation of your, of your podcast of making sense? Um, well, <clears throat> the relationship used to be too close because it, the, the relationship was that I, I wrote this book, uh, waking up and then, uh, I started a podcast and, uh, without any reason behind it, I called the podcast waking up. I mean, it was, it was like the, you know, my brain had run out of titles or something. I just repurposed the title of the book. It never made any sense because, you know, the, the, the podcast was always going to be about more than meditation and, and the contemplative life. And I mean, I was going to talk about, uh, all kinds of controversial issues, you know, politics and, and, um, you know, just, I mean, it's just, there's, it made no sense. Right. So I, I, so, but it took a while to divorce those two projects. And, um, so now I, I'm in a position which is really nice where I can, I can talk about anything I want on the podcast. And again, this goes to, I I talk about, I mean, I recently had an episode on, on racism and police violence. I just, the last one I released is, you know, on nuclear war, um, I mean, it's just, I can go in any direction I want, uh, but I occasionally, with some frequency, I'll have a conversation on the podcast that also belongs in the Waking Up app. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I'll be talking about human happiness or, or, um, you know, with a, with a scientist who's studying it, or I'll be talking to, to, I'll be talking about meditation with, with somebody. Um, and so now there's a, a track within waking up, which is just conversations that are related to the, the project of living a more examined life. And uh, so I can do, and then, and there, there are conversations that land in the app that ne- that are never on the podcast because they're they're too focused on meditation. So I really essentially I have two podcasts now, and occasionally we'll release episodes on both platforms. But um, it's nice to it's just nice to have two venues where I can you know I I can talk about anything that interests me on the podcast and then uh, focus on on what I consider to be the most important things on the app and, and and those occasionally hit the podcast but you know the truth is only a subset of my podcast audience is interested in in meditation or or any of these you know esoteric things and so you know i i you know while it is a a somewhat captive audience that i i flog somewhat merciless, mercilessly <laughs> um it's I, I can only do so much of that and so then you know that's that's why i have the app well, uh, we're going to try and drop this episode uh, in time with the Making Sense book, which just comes out on uh, August 11th. Um, what can you promise for those who haven't yet purchased it? Yeah, that that's an experiment. It's interesting. It's, I, I guess I, I'm somewhat inspired by what Tim did with his books that were deri- that were you know, directly derivative of his podcast. Uh, but um, this is this is even more derivative of mine. I mean, these really are just podcast conversations that have been slightly improved for print, but it, I mean, improved in, a, in an interesting way. If you are, if you are a, a fan of the podcast, because what, what I did is I asked the, the guest to, to refine their side of the conversation. And I did the same to mine. So we, we, of necessity, we had to keep the, the, the same, structure so it still is conversational but this is a you know g- given the nature of, uh, of the things we're talking about this was really an opportunity to to uh, make sure we had said exactly what we wanted to say and this is sort of the final iteration of of the exchange and so I, and I'm talking to some very interesting smart people people like David Deutsch and Daniel Kahneman and Robert Sapolsky and um uh, Thomas Metzinger, and there's a lot of philosophy of mind in there, <clears throat> a lot of discussion of consciousness. But um, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> but um, also also conversations about you know racism or um, uh, political violence and uh, the prospect of tyranny with uh, with uh, Timothy Snyder, a historian. Um, so there's there's a uh, it's an experiment in seeing whether it, it may it, it, it's useful to bring a con, a podcast conversation into print and um, make that the, the the final version of it. And it's um, I, I think it, it, it certainly seems useful given those those participants because they 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 really are great thinkers and you know they were all generous with their time and and uh, we we. Um, we produced a book for the truth is there are many people who haven't, who haven't figured out how to integrate podcasts into their lives. And I, I'm with some regularity get emails from people saying, you know what, you know, why aren't, why don't you blog anymore? Because I, you know, I just, I don't have time to listen to podcasts and I, I miss your work. <laughs> and, 
And so like, these are people who by Can definition- you drive and read at the same time? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they don't have commutes and they don't go to the gym, right? So they're like, they haven't found, like the amazing thing is that we've all found an extra 90 minutes in our days, or at least pre-COVID we, we had, where we just realized, you know, you can, you can multitask in this way. Uh, but some people never made that discovery. And so, yeah, I mean, those, for those people, they, they need books. And so we'll, um, we're, we've now given them a book. Well, I'm very excited to receive it at some point here in the near future from Amazon or my preferred books book buyer to be local. Um, and you mentioned a couple of times the pandemic, and it's very hard to have a conversation at all today without, and I think it would be missing an important beat here to not hear hear your take on it. Because it's a, like we have to acknowledge that, you know, so hundreds of thousands of people have died economies around the world uh so many jobs completely hammered and yet so much so little has changed on the surface like we're just still doing the things and you know such a fraction of us are sick so you can say that nothing has changed but at the same time we have to look around and say that isn't it true that everything has changed yeah yeah i mean well, I mean, the first thing to acknowledge is that it's by no means one, one common experience. I mean, there's just this range of experiences here, uh, and at the tails, you know, they look nothing like one another. I mean, there are people who, for you know, for whom you know, everything has been lost. I mean, they, obviously, there are people who have died, or the people who have lost uh, people close to them, uh, and lost their careers and can't figure out how to function normally at all, right? Uh, and then there are people who, on some level, have even benefited from it, right? Like the, you know, their business is booming, and they're they just they were in the right business, and you know they they've three xed everything they were doing, and they could do it all from home anyway. And it's um, you know, these are boom times, and um, and they don't know anyone who's been sick, and so it's it's just a happy. Um, abstraction for them, uh, but and, I, and I'm I'm frankly much closer to that end of the distribution. I mean, I, you know, I by sheer good luck seem to have been just perfectly prepared for a a pandemic. I mean, just in the, in the way my my business functions and my my team is was already totally distributed. You know, I do I can have conversations like this uh, in the same way that I, I was having them. You know, over the internet. Uh, almost nothing about my my work life has changed, and you know that's again that is just a pure accident, right? I mean that's you, you know there are people who were at the absolute top of their their craft and and industry creatively who got zeroed out by this. I mean mm -hmm. if you, if your if your job was to be a live performer, mm -hmm. right, and you had a you know a multi city stadium tour booked, right? I mean, you just fill in the blank, whoever you were, you know, I mean, and, and you had no other gig, right? I mean, some people who, who have that gig, like Joe Rogan, have many other games they're playing. And so they, they don't actually suffer the loss of it. But, but for someone for whom that's your only gig, right? Yeah. That your, your life, your, your, your career just went to zero. And, and it remains to be seen when it will reboot. So, and then obviously there are the people who were already just one paycheck away from from uh, an emergency, and so it's it's 
this is not this is not one thing. This is many things for people, and um, I consider myself incredibly lucky. But even from this place of of almost total good fortune, I am very concerned about what has happened here and what shows no sign of of stopping. I, I think we're obviously we haven't controlled the contagion in the U.S. I mean, the the U.S. has has catastrophic failed. catastrophic yeah. failure yeah and and just i mean failed in a way that has has consequentially changed the perception of our country from you know from you know every other country in the world i mean it's just it's amazing it's kind of you know i'm not saying we should feel this personally but it is a kind of national humiliation which matters Right, I mean, like, there's just no leadership from, from no pretense of leadership, uh, and that this has uh, geopolitical implications, and um, and it just it is an open question how long we will suffer the the epidemiological and economic effects of this, and I, I feel like the economic effects haven't even truly begun yet, notwithstanding the fact that so many people. Have suffered a lot. I mean, if you look what's happened to the the restaurant industry, and yeah, so many people in our audience here listening who are are photographers and designers and or live musicians or yeah. entrepreneurs whose job it is to you know create a restaurant or to put six hundred people in a room to hear live music every night. And so you know, I think disproportionately those listening. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you about it is because it really has wiped. I mean, I know so many James Beard awarding chefs feel have fifteen restaurants yeah. that are now done yeah cooked yeah, no, 50 man. years old lifelong you know project creating a, a brand and a you know a trust with a community and it's zero yeah and and that's you know to get political for a moment here i mean the, the, when you see that it, it is it is so obvious that we want some system that can cancel disparities in luck, right? It's like, it's like, I mean, this is purely a matter of good and bad luck, right? I mean, you take the most successful people in the restaurant business, they got destroyed by this, right? And it's just, it's purely a matter of luck that you and I are in a, in a business that isn't vulnerable to a pandemic, right? Yeah. So the question is, do you want these, these swings of, of, good and bad fortune to be purely a matter of luck? Or do you want a, a, a kind of uh, social safety net that that cancels the, 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 the gravest disparities? And I think it's, I mean, it's, it's obvious that, I mean, this roulette wheel is just spinning every moment of our lives. We, we don't want people falling through the cracks here, you know, right? And here we're talking about, you know, this, this is obviously always relevant to the people in our society who are unlucky in other ways. I mean, they're people who are, you know, orphaned, you know, yeah, and, and, and grown into, and, or yeah, yeah, they're, they're born into some horrible circumstance, or they have some, some, uh, um, you know, biological, you know, congenital bad luck, right, that, that limits their opportunities, and and so that there's just we we obviously want a floor below which no one can fall in our society, and insofar as we get. Uh, better and better at creating wealth, you know, in, in success, you know, when, when AI 
proves itself to be you know totally aligned with our interests and we're just pulling wealth out of the ether uh, we want that floor to rot, to keep going up for people we want it to keep rising such that you know it's just the the the, the poorest person in the year 2050 is you know lives a better life than than anyone in the middle class lives today and and then the question is how to get there but i, I just don't think there can be much doubt that that something like that is the goal right we just we cuz what we're seeing now is we have a system where you know i mean when when these when when unless we figure out how to keep flushing trillions of dollars into the system um at at a certain point the the money's going to run out right I and mean, it's going to run out here pretty shortly and then we will be left with a a, a much starker vision of of you know what the economic consequences of COVID are, and um, so it's you know I'm I'm worried how we're gonna I'm worried about how we're gonna navigate this, and and it's um, I just think we we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that on some basic level we we are in this you know collectively we're all in this together, and and the differences between people are um, again this was a a a matter of of roulette and just you know how much we how how comfortable you know even those of us who are who are doing quite well in this circumstance should be willing to sacrifice to cancel some of these some of these disparities because it's just it makes no sense to 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 be whistling past the graveyard here merely celebrating your good fortune and and you know who knows what's going to happen next time um painful <laughs> so so painful Last last question, um, we've I think uh, this audience that we're speaking to today, the people who pay attention to me and or Creative Live, I think they're well aware that my definition of creativity is more with a capital C, not not popsicle sticks and glitter and art. Art is rather, in my view, very important, but it's still a subset of creativity with the capital C, and that is. We, we're constant. We're co-creating this conversation. For example, we're creating everything all the time. We're creating machines. I'm wondering what role creativity plays in Sam Harris's world because I haven't heard you talk a lot about it. And I know, you know, I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, and you're like, I don't know what I how much I can say about it. But I think just instinctively, I want to hear you talk about the role that creativity plays in in the way that Sam Harris sees the world. Yeah, you know, it's it's not a, a concept I I f- think in terms of all that much. I mean, which is I guess somewhat ironic because I, for the longest time I wanted to be a a fiction writer, and I you know I I, I read so I, I read mostly nonfiction these days, but you know I've read a, a lot of literature over the years, and so you know creativity is something I I um, even in in the in my capacity as a writer is something that I, I i love and and would want to work more into my work um you know explicitly but you know i think of it in terms of um actually a good definition i just asked on on my own podcast uh, my guest before last uh, the psychologist scott barry kaufman who wrote a book called transcend about about humanistic psychology and and a sort of a, a modern reworking of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I asked him how he differentiated creativity from from intelligence and uh, other other seemingly related concepts, and and he he said that uh, 
he thought of creativity as being a, the, a fusion of, of intelligence and imagination. And that, that seems right to me. It's, it's, not, it, it's, it's not merely intelligence. I mean, intelligence is you know, how you solve problems in various contexts and um, and get you, and meet various goals and you know we we often talk about you know creative uses of intelligence or, or certain solutions to problems being more creative than others but you know when we invoke the concept of creativity it really is this added piece of imagination right where you're you're imagining what could be or what should be and and then then using your intelligence to to flesh that out, to, to actually make that make that um, imagined state of the world actual, you know, you're inventing something, or you're just you're just uh, building a, a picture of a possible world in in, in fiction, um, or in some in some artistic uh, medium. And uh, it, honestly, I wish I you know I'm I'm always tempted to start writing fiction again, or, or write a play, or or do something that gets that um, that muscle working explicitly but uh, as of yet I haven't done it uh, because I just you know I've had so many other uh, projects you know. <laughs> you've got 52 yeah. projects we can't even yeah. talk about it in a 90 minute conversation but there is one you know there there is a um I have I have a few projects on the back burner that that I will hopefully uh, if life is long enough I will I will get to uh, and they will be explicitly creative. I, I prefer to to uh, look at all of your activities as wildly creative, and I want to say personally thank you for changing, you know, adding a layer of integrity and and rigor to a lot of different fields. Um, your work in meditation and mindfulness and the app is just uh, groundbreaking. I'm super excited um, for the new book, and I want to steer everybody towards. Uh, towards making sense the book which comes out on august 11th and just want to say a personal thank you for being on the show sam and um i wish you continued good luck and in this crazy uncertain time um i'll look for you as a continued guiding light on all of the different channels anywhere you'd want to steer people in particular besides the book uh podcast and your app uh, oh, they they can just find everything at samharris.org. That's that's my website. So, yeah, it's really it's great to connect with you, Chase. I really uh, I hope I hope we do it uh, in person when civilization reboots after uh, after you know after a vaccine, if uh, if not before. But um, uh, yeah, great great to meet you by voice. Thank you so much for being on the show, and to everybody who's tuning in. Thank you so much. Um, take a peek at Sam's work. Uh, I really encourage you to dive into the app and. Um, his podcast, both of which are transformational for on so many different vectors. Um, thanks again for being on the show, Sam, and I bid everyone adieu. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. 
and that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here, whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds, tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.